Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today, we're going to be talking about music copyright. Just to sort of set a scope on this, and just sort of be clear on that, I feel like we're probably going to be mostly talking about U.S. copyright law. Does that fit with where you're thinking as well? Yeah. A lot of, like, from my understanding, a lot of both British and Canadian copyright law is pretty similar to U.S. copyright. Yeah, I I know British copyright law has much stricter fair dealings requirement than American fair use. But I think like, you know, whenever I talk about these sorts of things, like I get people being like, you know, there are other countries in the world. And that's true. Like, I don't want to downplay the fact that other countries have other copyright laws. Partly, there are a bunch of international agreements on this that do lead to some level of homogeneity. And also, because a lot of tech platforms and media platforms are based in the US, we sort of export a lot of our copyright law. In general, also, as it comes to music, like obviously other countries do have their own music industries and stuff like that. But the American music industry is the biggest and kind of most centralized in the world. Right. I just don't want to pretend that what we're saying is more global than it is. But also a lot of the stuff does have global implications. Yeah. Because of American cultural hegemony. So just, yeah, wanted to acknowledge that off the bat. But yeah. Two minutes in and we're already at American cultural hegemony. This is going to be a good time. Oh, yeah, we are veering straight into (laughs) capitalism later in this episode. I promise you that. (laughs) Part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is like, I feel, I don't know, I feel like I kind of am in somewhat of the minority in terms of my views on copyright in music theory YouTube and music YouTube in general. Maybe, I don't know how this generalizes, but I feel like a lot of folks like you and Adam and, you know, a lot of the people in that space have a different set of views than I do on some of these. And it's a fairly high level set of disagreements, right? If I were to boil my views down to a single sentence, it would be U.S. copyright law is a broken and exploited system. Yeah. And I don't expect a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. Maybe there's some disagreements in terms of like where it's broken and what a good version might look like that I think might be interesting to explore if that works for you. Yeah. I come at this from a pretty radical point of view where generally I agree with that broad system, but I come from it from a point of view too, where I actually generally kind of am a copyright abolitionist. I think there are values, and we'll get into the nuances of this. I think there are values to copyright. I think as the world and as the systems exist now, copyright does more harm than it does good for creatives, for art, and for the world in general. At these more ground level stuff, I think you and I are going to agree on a lot, and I completely agree with you there. Where I'm at is that Setting aside the specific current implementation, I think the idea that if you make a piece of music or art in general, then you own that art, and if other people use it, you should be compensated, is a good idea. And there's a reason this is going to be an hour-long conversation, but like that is, as a basic fundamental principle, I think, where I'm at. I think the issue that I have with that, probably unsurprisingly, is in the idea that any one person can create a piece of art. As copyright is conceived, its philosophical framework is very much based on sort of enlightenment liberalism that has the individual centered. And I personally don't believe that that really is the reality of how creativity or art work. And obviously, you know, 
I will say, yeah, you know, Bob Dylan wrote Like a Rolling Stone or something like that. There's varying degrees. You know, Like a Rolling Stone is a song that Bob Dylan wrote, but a bunch of musicians played on live in studio. And Dylan's writing is deeply influenced by, you know, poetry of T.S. Eliot, also by generations of folk song. And like in general, I'm a big supporter of the commons. And I believe that most creative work both belongs in the commons and necessarily spawns from a rich commons. The realities are that there's some degree of spectrum to, you know, authorship over a song. But the reality is when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, I think that there's not enough of a meaningful difference between people who kind of quote unquote write their entire songs and people who quote unquote steal their song from someone. I have a really hard time seeing enough of a meaningful difference that there is a place where you can definitively draw that line of this person created this song. Yeah, so I completely agree with you. But the thing for me is like, I don't think the point of copyright is to accurately reflect how art gets made. I think the point of copyright is to allow for the creation of a professional artist class. And I think that in that framework, you have to have ways to make money off of things because we live in a society where if you don't have any money, you can't access basic necessities of life. This brings me to kind of away from the philosophical and into the grounded today is today, as we live and breathe in this world right now, Copyright law is relatively strong and musicians don't make money off music. It's incredibly, incredibly different to make money off music. And in fact, most of the musicians who make money off music, your day to day working musicians, most of them are people who play in like wedding bands and bar bands that play other people's copyrighted material and just have a license to use that stuff. The reality is that I agree that musicians need to have a way to make money off of music, but I don't think that with the current music industry systems, copyright does that. A lot of the problems I have with copyright law have to do with the extent to which it fails to prioritize protecting actual artists as opposed to yeah. mostly, you know, major labels. But that's a separate question. For me, like a lot of that is also technological. I think that it is much harder to copyright protect something in the age of the internet. Yes. It's just that makes it a lot harder to monetize a lot of things through traditional copyright venues. But like you look back at something like like the Great American Songbook, for instance. Yep. Which, you know, hugely important. But you don't get the Great American Songbook without professional songwriters. And professional songwriters aren't necessarily playing gigs. They're writing songs. If you imagine like today a professional songwriter, imagine I'm a professional songwriter and I write a song that is potentially really good. And I shop it around. I try and find someone who's going to play it. And I wind up showing it to, say, Ed Sheeran. And Ed Sheeran goes, wow, this is a really great song. I would love to put it on my next album. I can say, cool, pay me money and you can do that. And they can say either, yes, here's your money, or they can say, no, we're not going to use the song. Yeah. But if I can't in a meaningful way own that song, they also have a third option where they say, no, we're not giving you money, and then they use it anyway. And so the only way that I can then monetize my work as a songwriter is if I can get them to pay me before I show them the song. 
or to agree to pay me before I show them the song. In which case, at that point, they have to trust that I can produce a hit with sight unseen, which is a much higher barrier to entry. And so it becomes much harder for someone who is just working as a songwriter and not playing at gigs to sell their work in a way that can then fund their life. This is reliant on working within the current capitalist system yeah. because the reality is oh, absolutely. there are and have been lots of systems in history where people who make art are compensated through means that aren't selling yeah. their art. I will concede that a lot of my stuff is, you know, a lot more pie in the sky about this stuff. But I do also think that the entire system of copyright, I think, serves to reinforce this idea that artistic products and the idea of intellectual property and the idea yeah. that artistic products can be bought or sold. I believe in creating a world where artistic products belong to the commons and you can't have that world with copyright. It's a chicken or the egg situation, right? Where ultimately I think copyright reinforces these systems, you know, which is part of where my copyright abolitionism comes yeah. from. Your example, there is a very salient and, you know, very relevant example because a lot of the greatest songwriters ever are not musicians and are yeah. songwriters specifically and not performing musicians to be. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear. I, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I know what you meant. I just, yeah, yeah no, it's good to clarify. But yeah, I think you're getting at sort of the heart of my feelings here, which is that I think that a lot of the stuff that I see like complaining about copyright feels not wrong, but misdirected. Mm. Like I would also love to live in a world where all art is public domain. Yeah. I think that's a better world. Yeah. I don't think we get there by just removing and by just getting rid of copyright and just declaring that that is the case. Yeah. I think that a world where we just declare that that's the case and do nothing else different is a much worse world yeah. than the one we live in right now. So I don't know to what degree, because I wanted to get into talking about this book a little. Have you ever read Choke Point Capitalism by Cory Doctorow? I have not. I am familiar with Cory Doctorow in general, but I haven't read that book. Rebecca Giblin and Cory Doctorow. And it's kind of yeah. about creative industries as they exist now and how this kind of choke point model, to use the music industry, for example, how sure. the model that kind of gives all of the power to the label now is these choke point platforms where musicians basically have no choice. Yeah, like, yeah, Spotify, YouTube, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. if musicians want their music out there, they need to use Spotify, they need to use YouTube, they need to play by those rules. Yeah. It talks a lot about one of the big points that it makes is that, I don't think this is the argument that you're saying, but the idea no. is they use this metaphor that I really like, which is they say that adding more copyright protections is like, finding out that a bully is taking your kid's lunch money and responding to that by giving your kid more money because ultimately the existing copyright protections are so exploited and exploitive that very little money is going to musicians. The barrier to entry to get into the industry is ceding most of their, you know, sort of 
copyrights to get on these platforms that don't pay out. And again, I don't think that what you're saying is we need stronger copyrights. And But something I do actually want to get in that also in this book they talk about is sort of actual kind of tangible solutions for what better copyright models might look like. And one of the big ones that they mentioned that I'm I'm very kind of fond of, as everyone does, you know, I have, you know, multiple kind of political consciousnesses on this, because on the one level, on the purely philosophical level, you know, I don't think anyone should be able to own art. But on the more practical yeah. level, like you were saying, like, I do acknowledge that the world exists as it does now and dropping copyright, you know, abolishing copyright would just cause a whole wreck um, with yeah. creative <laughs> industries. But one of the yeah. things that they kind of talk about is essentially copyright term limits. I forget how they phrase it, but essentially the way that copyrights work now, which is like kind of messed up, is like often labels will own all of the rights to people's musics and labels yep. will be the ones making the decisions. And, you know, that's how you have, you know, some really kind of messed up stuff that happens from that, from, you know, artists having their songs used in, you know, commercials for products that they don't support or things like that. One of the kind of solutions that they proposed is the idea that artists are able to cede copyrights for limited terms. And then if the label wants to keep them, renegotiate. Otherwise, the copyright reverts entirely and the ownership reverts entirely to the musician. And this is the system that, yeah. you know, has Taylor Swift not controlling her music in a system that would see a reversion. You know, she would either be able to have them revert or being the star she is, she would be able to yeah, sort she could of renegotiate. renegotiate the deal. Yeah. And take a much kind of higher cut of the copyright. Yeah. I think that's, that's not far from sort of like what I tend to think of as the good version of copyright. Because again, like you're saying, like I don't think strengthening copyright without fixing it first does anyone any good yeah. or anyone that I care about any good anyway. Yeah. yeah, a big thing for me has always been that I don't think it makes sense to treat artists and labels as basically interchangeable entities. Yes. Like you have this system right now where, you know, if I write a song, I can own it. But like if I write and record it with a label and I have a contract, they can own it. And if they own it, that's exactly the same. Legally, the structure of that legally is exactly the same as if I were to own it. And yeah. that is the thing that like, like you're saying, causes a lot of problems because we are treating Universal Music Group as a person and as an artist. And they're not. And again, and again I think there is value in labels being able to recoup costs and make some level of profit off art that they fund the production of. Yeah. That gives them an incentive to fund that production. And again, we can talk about whether we should live in a world where they're in control of those resources in the first place. But, you know, that's, again, a much larger question. In yeah. roughly the capitalism that we live under, they do. In order to get like highly produced, really like expansive, expensive albums made, you need someone to front those costs. And that's often not something that an artist can necessarily do themselves. Yeah. Having a system that allows labels to make that money back and make enough money on top of that to have justified taking the risk in the first place, sure, fine. But also, like, again, you know, the classic example is Disney. And this isn't music. I mean, Disney has plenty of music. There is just no reason that a company should still own the thing that Walt Disney made. 
Yeah. Like, there is no reason that Mickey Mouse, who is clearly in very many ways a shared cultural artifact at this point, should be privatizable and monetizable decades after the dude who came up with it died. Here's a musical example that always kind of astounds me is that Robert Johnson's music is not in the public domain right now, which is insane. This is a man who died a century ago and whose music has been so ubiquitously tied to rock music and to the kind of shared cultural history of rock and the blues. But yeah, you can't play Crossroad Blues without getting copyright claims. And I know this because... Yep. (laughs) For obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, that ties into a thing you were talking about with the choke point capitalism as well. Like one of the other problems in this space that you and I specifically encounter, which is that our interaction with music copyright is actually almost exclusively not through actual legal processes. Yes. So much of that is through an ad hoc system set up to work around a very complicated and weird and flawed copyright law. Yeah. But that actually hands probably even more power to labels than you would see in a court. Yes. Because I'm talking about YouTube. For anyone who didn't pick that up, I'm talking about the YouTube copyright claim system and how I have had probably a better experience with it than a lot of my colleagues on this front. I doesn't tend to bother me as much as most people seem to be bothered by it. But it's not a good system. Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on that because I do think that obviously it's relevant to the conversation, but also music YouTubers whining about copyright is, you know, it's kind of rote. It's done. I don't necessarily want to like spend a bunch of time dissecting that system. I just think it's important to acknowledge in terms of, you know, you and I have these experiences that bias our outlook. A hundred percent. We both do. Like 100. This is not like, oh, Noah is biased because he deals with this. I deal with it, too. And I have just as many biases. It's just, I think, worth recognizing. No, I I agree. And it's definitely worth mentioning because YouTube is how a lot of people get their music these days. But also on the kind of like broader scope of one of the things that this YouTube system does that a lot of copyright, you know, action does that I just think so much of copyright law fundamentally was unprepared for is it's just it's just designed not assuming anybody is going to be working in bad faith oh yeah the system is so designed on assuming that everyone has a good faith understanding of you know copyright and what consists of ownership and stuff like that but the reality is so much of this stuff operates in just like really 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 bad faith. Yeah, and a lot of the system is also designed on the assumption that you don't understand the actual principles underlying this, which is, to be fair, is true of a lot of people. And I think that's part of why it's sort of relevant to look at this is that I think a lot of people have a pretty flawed understanding of how copyright law works Yeah, because of the way these systems both are are designed and the way they, they work results in a lot of people not necessarily understanding what fair use actually means because a lot of times something that looks like fair use might get claimed anyway. And so, or a lot of times things that aren't fair use might not get noticed. One of the things too, especially on the fair use front that I really wanted to kind of talk about because I think it's sort of essential in any conversation of music copyright is the concept of sampling and where that plays into the whole thing. 
there's a whole lot of stuff to get into here, but essentially the golden age of hip hop was ended because of bad faith interpretation of copyright law and the entire medium of sampling, not to get too much into this, but I fully believe if the medium of sampling was invented by middle-class white musicians, it would not be subject to the same copyright scrutiny that it is now and it was especially in the 90s because it was invented by urban black communities yeah sampling is like it's it's a complicated one for me because like i think pretty clearly sampling is trans or at least it can be transformative right like i i can think of examples of ways to do it that wouldn't be but i think for the most part most samples are transformative yeah and so therefore like that that's one of those cases where i feel like the sort of public good and public commons arguments become strong enough that it makes sense to me to say, yeah, you can just do that and we're not going to worry about it. On the other hand, I was just did a video about the Amen break. Yeah. The thing that like I think is really important to acknowledge about the Amen break is that G.C. Coleman, the drummer who played it, died homeless and broke and never saw a penny from that outside of the initial album sales, despite this being the most sampled song in the history of music. And despite having this huge impact on decades of musical culture, but he never saw anything and he probably didn't even know about it. And like, to be clear, this all happened in a world where modern U.S. copyright law exists. Like, this is not to say that that system would have saved him. It didn't. It failed him. That's pretty clear. There is an extent to which, like, I look at that and it feels very clear to me that a great injustice was done. No one deserves to die homeless and broke. Yeah. That is true, and I want to acknowledge that separate from this point. But it is clear to me that the level of contribution that he made to the world of music deserved more compensation than what he received by a wide margin. As tragic as it is, it's also a corner case. It's a very niche situation there are very few people in the position of G.C. Coleman and very few breaks in the position of the Amen break. Like, and a lot of them, the people at Clyde Stubblefield, he played with James Brown for a long time. Like, yeah, he wasn't in the same position as Coleman, who was in the Winstons, which really never took off and really never made that much money off of other things. And so there's no other way that he made money to make that work. It was just this one break. So I don't know how necessarily to fix the law in a way that would prevent that without having other knock-on effects that I think are bad. Like, again, like you say, sampling in general is a good thing. And I don't think that it should be illegal. I think that people should be allowed to do it. And I don't think it's copyright infringement. But also there's, you know, you look at this situation and it, it seems very clear to me that things should not have happened the way they did. I agree that that is the case, that things should not have happened the way they did. And I agree that it's a great injustice. But I also think in this case, ultimately, he is the one that played that drum break. And that is a key part of the legacy. But the reality is that that drum break is as important as it is because of the people that sampled it and because of its usage in sampling to the degree that, you know, I kind of think that finding a sound that fits whatever you're trying to do musically, finding something that's interesting and dynamic, something like that. In my mind, it's not even just that sampling is 
fair use and is transformative, in my mind, that is songwriting. There's kind of yeah. nothing different in my mind from someone sampling the Amen break as there is to Bob Dylan taking the melody of Blowing in the Wind from an old American folk song that's kind of been passed down generations. I mean, the I guess the only difference is we do know who played the Amen break. We don't know yeah. who wrote those folk songs. Chances are they died pretty penniless and broke. Well, yeah, that, that's the other thing is we don't know who they were, but also by the time we're taking melodies in the 20th and 21st century, taking folk melodies and writing new songs with them, the people who wrote them are dead. Like... There's a lot of cases when we're sampling music that is coming from artists who are still alive. And again, like in the case of G.C. Coleman, he was around for about like 20 years after that break started to get big. A lot of the folk musicians whose music was taken in, you know, by Dylan or, you know, even in sort of the a lot of the blues acts of the 70s and stuff yeah. like that were not dead in that time. Very much were not dead. It's a fair point. The realities of kind of blues and folk traditions. And I mean, obviously, talking about sort of acts like Led Zeppelin in all of this and the part yeah. that they play, you know, I did a whole video on this. One of the things that kind of I think is an important distinction to make in a lot of these situations is I think that there's a lot of people when you kind of talk about things like copyright abolitionism and things yeah. like that. I think there's a lot of people who kind of assume that something being legal is the same thing as something being moral. Because I do oh, yeah, think, no. like, often when it comes to this stuff, like, I don't think there should be anything illegal about Led Zeppelin taking Willie Dixon songs and playing them yeah. and transforming them. And I don't think Led Zeppelin, a lot of those songs, I don't even think Led Zeppelin necessarily should legally be required to give Willie Dixon or Robert Johnson or someone like that credit. But I do believe that there is a moral imperative for artists yeah. to do those things. And the reality is... Like, obviously, legality and morality are tied and, you know, you want to frame laws around morals. But there are plenty of things that people do every day that are perfectly legal and are probably not ethical and are probably not moral. And I think when oh, yeah. it comes to this stuff in music, the onus is kind of put on both the artists, but also the listeners and audiences to hold artists accountable to this stuff, especially in the internet age. On the talk of sampling, like something that I think yeah. is just an absolute brilliant site that does a huge net good for the world is Who Sampled, which is a yeah. website that is just a sample database. And just the simple knowledge of being able to at the click of a button, look up who wrote this thing. Yeah, what are the things and where are they used as well? Yes. When I was working on the Amen Break video, that was a big thing that was really helpful was I could go and it would be like, this song uses it. And, you know, sometimes it's the beat for the entire song. Yeah. But like, you know, if it's not just being like Slipknot's Pulse of the Maggots has a brief clip of the Amen Break. And instead of having to listen to the entire thing and try and find it, it was just like, it's here. It's at this exact moment. Listen here. And yeah, hugely important. I completely agree. And I think by using these sorts of tools, I think these sorts of tools 
enable us to build a better copyright world where people are able to, you know, give credit for these things and people are able to say, hey, look, my sample was used on this thing. And ultimately, I think the reality is that it is definitely a bit of a dream situation, something like that, because the reality is that if systems are able to be exploited, a lot of people will try to exploit them and a lot of people will succeed in that exploitation. Yeah. And also because of a lot of how these things work, once you succeed in exploiting, you wind up in a position to do more and more effective exploiting. And so you wind up with, even if you have a bunch of people, even if the vast majority of people would be fair and respectful with all of these things uh, voluntarily, the set of people who aren't are the ones who are probably best positioned to succeed. Yeah. And that's, you know, not great, but, you know, it is what it is. This is one of the things, and I I think this is something, kind of an opinion I have on this that I haven't seen a ton. The reality of, you know, being a copyright abolitionist and believing in a strong commons, creative commons as a system, it's useful, but deeply, deeply flawed, not as deeply flawed as copyright. But to be clear, when I talk about a commons, I'm not specifically talking about the creative common system. I'm just sure. talking about a sort of commonwealth of intellectual, you know, and creative ideas yeah. that belong to everyone. A large and strong public yeah. domain. Yes, exactly. The similar way to like when I say artists should be able to own work, I'm not talking about modern American yeah. copyright yeah. law um, because modern American copyright law sucks. The reality is I think if as, you know, musicians and music fans and in general, just as citizens, we want to live in a world with a strong commons and a strong public domain. Part yeah. of the onus has to fall on us to uphold and challenge people that try to exploit these systems. Like, I think that that's one of the things where when you talk about, you know, well, in this system, what's going to stop some big artist yeah. from just stealing a song from a smaller artist? Uh, we are. And that's a big piece of the puzzle that I think you see it happen online all of the time. People are kind of constantly bringing up examples of musicians that they think are copying things and things like that. And I'm not advocating for mob rule, but I do think that one of the things that the copyright system has kind of cut out is it's cut out any of the responsibility that the public has to maintain the commons. And in doing so, because there's no longer any onus on us for that, the commons have been deeply exploited. And it's a lot easier for us to kind of look away and be like, oh, well, the copyright system is going to, you know, defend people's intellectual property and stuff like that. When the reality is that, you know, in most of human history, art has flourished because it's been, you know, created and supported by artistic communities and by artistic cultures and by people from, you know, both a patron level, an audience level, a creative level. There is a sort of common stewardship over the arts that has existed for much of human history that I think has kind of disappeared in the age of copyright. I'm a little suspicious of that. Yeah, fair. 
within the narrow framework of still assuming basically modern American capitalism. Yeah. Like, again, getting back to my previous point of like the right, the good system, the system that like does what I want it to do doesn't look anything like the current one in a lot of ways that are not just copyright law. Yeah. But if, if we assume a narrow scope of only being able to change copyright law and assume that everything else stays roughly the same around it, like, I am not super convinced of the capacity of the sustained emphasis and focus required to push any sort of real change on that. I think if we want to talk about people holding artists and labels accountable to this sort of thing, I think one of the best ways to do that is laws. Because, like, UMG doesn't care if I'm mad about what one of their artists did. But UMG is cares a lot if I can sue them for millions of dollars about it. In this whole kind of collective approach, one of the aspects of this collective also has to include artists and creatives being yeah. willing to opt in to creating music without copyright, creating art without copyright. Like that is yeah. kind of a big part of it yeah. is implementing some version of not like creative commons itself, but something in that space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or I mean, in some cases, maybe creative commons. It's yeah. a better framework than I could probably come up with on my own. That's part of the yeah. ownership as well. Like the disintegration of copyright doesn't come from a top down level of us saying, you know, oh, copyright sucks, let's get rid of copyright laws. Yeah. It comes from a bottom-up level of creatives opting in to a strong public domain and audiences yeah. understanding that stewardship of that public domain is part of their responsibility and part of what they get for reaping the benefits of this strong public domain. And it's definitely a bit of a yeah. utopian idea. Yeah, I think it sort of comes back to a point I was making earlier, where I think in a lot of these cases, choosing to exploit the system as it exists puts you in a better position to succeed. And artists relinquishing copyright over their work means relinquishing a lot of avenues for monetization. And not all of them, but it means giving up a fair number of them. And that's a big sacrifice. I guess that this is an important point, not saying that this is your thing, like a lot of the things that I see around sort of copyright complaints and fixed systems and whatever are things that are much easier to do if the artists in question are already independently wealthy. And I think you and I can both agree that the world would be a worse place if only the independently wealthy could make art professionally. Yes. That's bad. I think a lot of this comes back to the point that I kind of was talking about in the beginning where yeah. people who aren't independently wealthy don't have avenues of making money in yeah. music as is right now. I mean, they don't have many. Yeah. Like, I don't think that there are many of those avenues that are specifically reliant on copyright. I will concede your your point about songwriters is a good one, and that is yeah. that is a good consideration. But the reality is, it's not like any kind of indie-level band is able to make yeah. a lot of money no, a lot of the money you make is people buying stuff from you, either buying your CDs to support you or buying tickets to your show, buying your merch, yeah. stuff like that. Like, that's totally true. And none of that really requires copyright. And there are more tools than ever to do that. Because the reality is, like, I think this is something that it's it's kind of easy to forget when we live in this world. 
for most of the 20th century, there was sort of a working middle class of musicians. It was very feasible to make a living as a touring musician, writing and recording your own stuff, paying for your own studio time, not making a huge living, often, you know, like driving in a crappy beat up tour van and making enough to pay rent and put food on the table. And that system did rely on copyright because of record sales, but nobody is going to go back to a world where people have to pay for music. Yeah, it's just not happening. Yeah. If that's not happening, then I think there is a better option, which is creating a world where, you know, musicians are able to create and flourish a little bit more. Maybe the cost of that is relinquishing copyright, but the copyright, like I'm saying, like it's not making them yeah. money right now. Yeah, it's it's not the main thing. I think that one sort of particularly concerning extreme case for me on these sorts of things is like, you know, again, let's say hypothetically, I am a professional performing musician. Yeah. And I write a song and I have my small local fan base that comes to my shows. And, you know, let's say just to use that name again, just like Ed Sheeran comes along, hears my song, happens to be at my show or happens to get my CD and just decides he likes the song and he's going to put it on his album. For a lot of people, suddenly my version becomes a cover. But yeah, how is that different than that world with copyright is, I guess, then you will get royalties from the Ed Sheeran song? I would get royalties, but it also, him owning that song in people's minds, which again, we can talk about like the philosophical concept of ownership of art, but the reality is that most people will associate songs with artists. Yeah. Like, I think that that is true. And I think that if people keep associating the songs that I am making with another artist they already know and love, it becomes much harder for me to then build a fan base for my own art because it keeps getting used by other people. And there's no reason for him to not... I am not actually trying to say anything negative about Ed Sheeran here. He's just an example of a big pop star. He keeps stealing Corey's hypothetical songs. Yeah, and one day I will get my revenge. (laughs) Or someone could build a career off just doing all of my songs and happen to get a little more attention and... That makes it much harder for me to then break in if every time I make new music, that music gets taken by someone else and played by someone else in exactly the same way. And that's, I think, very different from, like we were talking, like transformative uses where it's like people hear a song and are influenced by it. That's a very different thing. But I think that there, at the very least, it is important to have some level of protection against literally just playing my song but calling it yours. Yeah, I mean, I understand and appreciate this, but I think often those protections, I think there are situations where often a lot of those protections can be things that can happen on a, you know, if we're going to continue with these platforms, that can be kind of a, a lot of those things can happen on a platform policy basis. Like, like something that, something that existed you know, you know, for quite a long time, it doesn't really exist anymore. Kind of still does, but doesn't really. But especially in the 60s and 70s and 50s also, actually, like 50s and 60s, especially, um, there were they were called sound alike records where yeah. essentially what would happen is people would, you know, take 
the Beatles or, uh, you know, Paul Anka or anyone who was big and they would bring in an artist who could do a decent imitation of them, bring in a bunch of cheap session musicians and cut a discount version that would sell next to the shelf for a buck cheaper. You know, like David Bowie yeah. actually got a start like doing sound like covers. So did Elton John, especially in yeah. Britain. It was a it was a big thing, which is also just like a, you know, you know, as an aside, it's a neat little aspect of yeah. music history. There are definitely more avenues to address situations like that in copyright. But the reality yeah. is we live in a copyright system now and there are just so many examples of this sort of theft in the system as is that if you're not independently wealthy you don't have the recourse for it in this system as is so i think a lot of kind of what yeah. what i'm saying here is these are all problems in a system without copyright but they are just as much problems in a copyright system, right? Yeah, they're not solved by... Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. A lot of this is... And again, like, even going back to, like, the, the Amen Break example, even that happened under, yeah. like, modern copyright law. So this is not... Right? It's not to say that modern copyright law, but it's not to say that any copyright law could be perfect on this front. I think a lot of the problem here is, again, a thing that, like, as we've mentioned a couple times, is that our scope is intentionally narrow here in this yeah. conversation, which is that the best system, the system that solves the problems I have and that you have, and that makes a world where the things we want to happen happen is a system that changes a lot of things that are not copyright law. Yes. Like, yeah, there is just no way to get there by just changing how we handle copyright. Yeah. It's just not possible. And so that means that, you know, a lot of this is sort of inherently playing around at the margins and trying to find the best solution under a flawed system. With that being said, I do think it's worth kind of trying to get into, because I do think there are kind of, and we've mentioned them a little, but like tangible examples of yeah. changes that can be made to the copyright system, kind of regardless of the yeah. philosophical things. I mean, one of the biggest and most obvious absolute no-brainer is just changing copyright terms, like changing copyright yeah. terms to make them last way less and to make them, yeah. in general, just more, you know, accessible. That would go a long way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact number what I would yeah. want it to be, but honestly, like, I would feel pretty comfortable suggesting like like 20 years from the creation of art seems sure. to me to be and and that's incredibly incredibly liberal compared to stuff that exists right now even doing yeah. like 50 years from the creation of the piece would be such a hugely transformed yeah. so much stuff would become immediately yeah. public domain if you did that and it would be a, a sheer artistic revolution the likes of yeah. which we like haven't really seen in the modern age would happen. It would be yeah. insane. No, that would be utterly transformative to the world of art yeah. in a good way. Yeah. Uh, and I think sort of my view, and this sort of comes back to a thing I was saying earlier about like separating out the concept of an artist and a label yeah. in terms of ownership is that like, I don't mind life of the creator as a term, as long as the creator owns it. So yeah. but what I would say is 
like and and there are ways to game this system. I would like to see much more rigorous definitions around a lot of this stuff yeah. before it was written into law. But like the basic vision that I would want is say like you know life of the artist, but for the first twenty years or twenty five or whatever the number is. I don't care about the number either. We can work out a fair number if this becomes a plausible reality. Let's say twenty years. For the first twenty years, other people can own it. Right. Like if yeah. I can sell it to the label, the label can own it for 20 years. But if I sell it, then after that 20 years, it's public domain. Yeah. And at that point, like if I hold on to it, I can continue profiting off of it because I did it. And again, like back to the, the whole question of like, can one person make a piece of art? That's a whole complicated question. I think that it that's a useful enough proxy just compared to what it would have to look like otherwise. And again, I think there is, I say again, I'm not sure I mentioned this, but one of the things you brought up early on was the question of like, recording musicians, people who may not have written the notes or whatever, but were in the studio and played a part in it. And I think that there is a good argument to be made that they should own some part of that copyright as well. There's actually an interesting conversation going on with kind of credits right now, because I don't know if this is too inside baseball, but there are yeah. a lot of kind of laws around revenue shares with if you have a songwriting credit on a record or if you don't. Yeah. And because yeah. of the sort of messed up interpretation of sample law, everyone who has a writing credit on a song that is sampled will get a writing credit on the final thing. Everyone that has yeah. a, a credit on the original one will get a credit on the song that samples it and will get a fraction of those royalties. Yeah, like good for you was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, where they sort of added Paramore as songwriters yeah. to avoid a yeah. copyright oh, case, God, even though they. They were never in the room. They had no involvement in the writing of that song. Yeah. It was just sort of in the same genre. That's That sort of stuff is just ridiculous. To be fair, to my understanding, if I recall correctly, Haley Williams of Paramore was not in favor of that. That was yeah. the thing the label did. Yeah. Uh, sort of forced on them. But yeah. There are frameworks within copyright for crediting those musicians and mixers and stuff like that. Yeah. They're often the result of, you will see... Lots of bands uh, get into fights and eventually break up over things like songwriting yeah. credits. Also, one yeah. of the, again, in terms of tangible stuff, and I don't think th this is just a kind of must have for any change for me, is sampling should be considered fair use. Yeah. Sampling is artistic composition. That is such a black and white one to me yeah. that the only reason why it is the way that it is, is to put more wealth into the pockets of the wealthy. Yeah. Again, the situation with the Amen break is, I think, a huge injustice and a huge tragedy, but also a very narrow corner case. Yeah. Most songs that are sampled are sampled not that regularly. Yeah. And have used specifically like this one time. And in that sort of situation, it, there's no obvious reason to me for that to require compensation. Yeah. Like that, that feels very fair use, uh, assuming you're not just playing their song. Even if you don't do that, like, I think the biggest thing that you can do, this is one that's really, like, yeah. even more so than requiring compensation is requiring clearance. I think having yeah. to clear a sample is ridiculous. I think samples yeah. should have a framework similar to, there is a framework, again, this is kind of inside baseball, but there is a framework for covers where there's i don't know exactly how it works but basically you can uh, compulsory you, license yeah there's there's just a set rate that you can 
pay and then you have to be allowed to be able to license a song to cover it. There are restrictions on how transformative that can be Yeah, in terms of like the extent of what you can do with it. If you like Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, because I'm just, I just cannot stop mentioning Ed Sheeran in this <laughs> podcast for some reason. Uh, but if you like Ed Sheeran's Shape of You and you want to record a cover of Ed Sheeran's Shape of You where you play it basically how Ed Sheeran did, he can't stop you if you pay a compulsory license yeah. fee. He just, there's yeah. nothing he can do. Uh, but yeah, clearance, I completely agree with you on. Uh, I do think, sort of back to the sort of the who sampled question, I think there is maybe a space for requiring credit. Like just saying like, these are the tracks we use, we sampled for this. Like having that somewhere just, I like that doesn't bother me. Like I don't know that I would necessarily say that it's, you know, a necessary part of having an ethical sampling yeah. legal system. It's nice to have, yeah. Like that, that feels fine to me to just say like these, you, if you use these five songs, tell people you used these five songs. Yeah. And, you know, and again, sort of removing the sort of the compensation and the clearance aspects of it makes that a lot easier to do. Yeah. Because, you know, I am not creating any additional obligation for myself by owning up to the fact that I used this track. Yeah. I mean, I do think, again, there are complications with that with like often, especially on kind of an independent level, people will buy sample packs and things like that and not actually know where the original came from or will like i mean there's all kinds yeah. of examples of people uh like like sampling a song that is itself a sample of a sample you know yeah yeah and it, but in that case you know like if i sample straight out of compton yeah and i was like i used that beat and i chopped it up and i did whatever i don't feel like i have to tell you that amen brother is in there because if i tell you straight out of compton is in there and you go look at straight out of compton and they're like amen brother is in there that sort of credit through credit. I, I I don't think you have to trace all the way down all of those yeah, things, that's but very just be fair. like, I used this song. I don't know exactly what I want that to look like. And I also don't know that what I want that to look like is the most important thing, right? Like that this is not a field of art that I work in. Yeah. And, you know, if the, the conversation of what a fair and good sample uh, set, set of sampling rules is should involve sampling artists yes. and sampled artists yeah. primarily and should focus on their interests. And I'm guessing at what those are from the outside. Here's my thing is, frankly, I think it should involve sampling artists. I don't think it should involve sampled artists. That's kind of... That's fair. It disproportionately yeah. involved sampled artists the first time. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sampling reform is a huge one that would go... A long yeah. way. Yeah. And some level of like non-ridiculous copyright terms. Like yes. this is, a, I think, a big part of the problem is just that like it's not even that people can own art. It's that, what is it now? It's like life of the artist plus 70 years or something. Yeah. 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 Like if you make something in your 20s, then that thing could be under copyright for over a century. Yeah. Very easily. That's ridiculous. And there's just, yeah, like you said, like, even if we were just say like all things 50 years from creation, the number of artists that would be negatively affected by that. Yeah. It's a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction. Yeah. Most art has no staying power 50 years after its creation. And yeah, many of those, even the ones that do, some of those artists have passed away. So like you you just, you don't have such little negative impact towards the parts of this that I care about. If you just say 50 years and it's public domain. Yeah. 
And like you said, that would be a huge revolution in the world of art. Yeah. If we just made everything public domain 50 years, like so many things would be public domain right now. Yeah, it would be it would be absolutely. I mean, if yeah. you if you did 50 years from like the creation of the work, the yeah. entire Beatles catalog would be public domain. Yep. And imagine yep. what could happen with that. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> the entire 60s and we're getting into part of the 70s. Yeah. Would be. Yeah. Most of disco would be public domain. Yeah. Aqualung would be public domain. Yeah. Not most of disco, the early stages of disco, I guess. But yeah. anyways, yeah. Yeah. Early Sabbath would be public yeah. domain. Oh, hell yeah. Which, you know, yeah. Imagine what the metal scene would do with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine because Backwash exists and she sampled uh, <laughs> sampled true, true. a bunch of Sabbath on her album without clearance because yeah. it was yeah. rad. It was very rad. Yeah. A big one is, yeah, yeah, the lowering of terms and with kind of copyrights of studios and stuff like that, some window where it reverts to the artist. Because the other thing, yeah. the other problem that that helps solve is the problem of often young artists are signed into very yep. exploitive deals. Yep. And, um, you know, it's the case with, there's too many to name, really. All, all of these, and that creates a framework wherein if a young artist is signed to an exploitive deal or is deeply undervalued or something after 10, 15, 20 years, suddenly they can renegotiate and they yeah. can make back those earnings. And, you know, it's, it's still yeah. not great that people are going to be signed to these deals. But again, it's a tangible difference. Yeah, but there's a, a hard limit on how how bad they can be and yeah. how hard they are to fix is a big part of it. Like, exactly. like you, know, you mentioned Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift signed a bunch of deals before she was who Taylor Swift yeah. is today. And now she can come back and be like, look, if you want to keep owning these things, you got to pay me like I'm Taylor 2020s Taylor Swift, not yeah. like mid 2000s yeah. Taylor Swift. Or the Prince is another big one that had huge yeah. problems with that. But yeah, no, like those those sorts of things, I think, are are real tangible improvements that can be made. Again, like the best system is not accessible by just changing copyright law, but there is a lot of good that can be done by changing copyright law. Yeah. I think we're on the same page on that. Yeah. I think like, I think we're on the same page on a lot of things, honestly. Like, you know, we, we do disagree, but, you know. I'm pretty radical with this stuff. And yeah, just doing sick kickflips and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm rad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think at the heart of it, yeah, what we can all agree on is the copyright system's really messed up and there yeah. are some very easy tangible steps that would go huge huge strides toward fixing it yeah. and that would make things better for both artists yeah. and art and from there you know you know it's it's almost like to get to a point where we can actually have a proper conversation about copyright we need to first get to a point where artists can you know create art and maybe, you know, sustain themselves. Yeah. Yeah. A, a fundamental necessity for me for any sort of system here is that there has to be a way to have a professional artist class that isn't made up of the independently wealthy. I don't expect much pushback on that from you or from anyone who listens this yeah. far into a Ghost Notes episode. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think that that's, I think that's basically. Yeah. Uh, I think we solved it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're welcome. Uh, this podcast episode uh, is in the public domain. I actually don't yeah. know if I'm contractually yeah. allowed to do. Yeah, that. I don't. I don't know because Nebula does produce it. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm not contractually allowed to do that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But like, if you want to sample this for your uh, oh, sick please. Beats, yeah. get in touch and, and we will try and clear that as, as easily and effectively as possible. Use our voices in your sick beats. Yeah. No, I, I will defend that as fair use if yeah. anyone comes yeah. at you. Lay down a beatbox for them to sample, Corey. Um, boots and cats and boots and cats. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for listening. All right. Bye. Bye.